Have you ever walked past a dumpster and been like, yo, I wonder what's in that dumpster? I can put on these glasses. Let's start eating that trash can. You're listening to the True Crime Dumpster podcast with hosts Amy and Kevin. And we are on our new microphone system and interface this week. So that's been fun figuring out. This (laughs) is a test run. Well, it's not a test run. It's the real deal. But this is the first. If we sound (laughs) more amazing than usual, it's because we got some new gear. Yeah. So we're not sharing a mic for the first time ever. So we're six feet apart with masks on. No, I'm just kidding. Um, Four masks on. (laughs) No, we're in the same room still. We can still handle each other. But we are on two different mics now. We're not sharing anymore. We're moving on up. Yep. Up so that podcast ladder to <laughs> to to 160 listeners. <laughs> yeah, here we go. So, well, we're very fortunate that you have tuned in this week because this week we are doing episode number 59. Wow. The abduction and survival of Natasha Kampusch part 2. Yep. We left you hanging last time. Yeah. So in the last episode, we discussed Natasha's childhood, her abduction by the 36-year-old weirdo Wolfgang Pricklopil, and the first month or so of her imprisonment. At this point, Natasha is 10 years old, terrified, forced to live in a five-meter square dungeon encased in steel and concrete underneath Wolfgang's house in Strasshof, Austria. We talked about her regression back to that of a four or five-year-old child as a way to cope with the extreme loss and helplessness Wolfgang put her in. She was a prisoner in a sick man's world and was forced to deal with it. After the first few months of her imprisonment, Natasha gave up all hope of trying to persuade her kidnapper to let her go. She knew there wasn't a point. So she decided to make the dungeon space into her space, her room, She asked Wolfgang for a calendar and an alarm clock. Without it, she didn't know if it was day or night. A bare light bulb overhead dictated when she woke up and when she slept. And of course, her kidnapper controlled that as he controlled nearly everything else in her life. I was going to say, that is fucking mental. (laughs) Yeah, he eventually he'll get one of those turn off turn on things so he doesn't have to remember to turn off and on the light for her because like in some weird way i think he well he thinks of himself as god for her and in some weird way way he's like i'm doing her a favor by like letting her know when she needs to be awake and when she needs to be asleep like i don't know i think that he's kind of convinced himself that what he's doing is okay well, in his defense, he's got some godly cheekbones. <laughs> he's got a god. Uh, I don't know. He's but, ungodly. But I gotta say, but... like that whole psychological terror of just turning on the lights on and off, regardless of what time yeah, it really and it, is. Yeah, and he because who he knows be what time it is her. outside. Yeah, yeah, know? yeah. Totally. It's so fucked up. But then he eventually puts it on like one of those systems where it just automatically turns off at eight p.m. Yeah, like the sprinklers, and then turns on at eight a.m. So it's just I also like. 
Yeah, he makes her have 12 hours of darkness and 12 hours of daylight. Like, it's pretty She's fucked up. She's not a mushroom. Up. I know. And also, on top of that, like, she'll she'll be, she was saying, like, she'd be, like, right in the middle of, like, a show or, like, reading a book or listening to a song. And then it's just, like, lights out. It sucks. It's like California in the summertime. <laughs> so she also wanted a calendar and a clock to measure school days, weekends, birthdays, and anything going on in the life that she used to have outside. She also asked the kidnapper to bring her cleaning products to ward off the damp smell of the cellar and death that hung over everything. Yeah, that's probably yeah, it's probably a good, good idea. Yeah. yeah. And so he brought her a broom and a dustpan, air freshener, and wipes to help keep the room tidy because, after all, it was an underground concrete crypt with no ventilation. So, sounds dank. Yeah, and not in the good way. <laughs> After she was done cleaning each day, she says that the room smelled of a chemical version of freshness, nature, and life. When she breathed in the chemical cleaning agents, she imagined that she was among colorful flowers and the blue sky. Isn't that sad? You know, I think I've... She's breathing really... She's really taking this stuff in because you can get there for sure. <laughs> well, I mean, she's 10, so she also began Gotta drawing. She also began drawing scenes of nature, so she could hang them down in her depressing dungeon. After being there for months, the most important change came in the form of a television set and video recorder. For a while, the only thing she was allowed to watch was the television that he recorded for her, and allowed her to play back on the VCR. Sounds like your dad. He would edit out any news broadcasts so he could keep her from hearing any news of her abduction or search. She watched ALF, which I also watched. Yeah. I Dream of Jeannie. Not such a big fan of, but she was hot. Married with Children, best show ever, and Home Improvement. They became replacements for her family and friends. She also loved anything science fiction. Anything that could help her escape her surroundings, even if it was only for a little while. Star Trek, Stargate, and Back to the Future. One day, the kidnapper brought her a radio. Spring day. <laughs> Don't skip things I wrote. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't intentional. One spring day, <laughs> the kidnapper brought her a radio. Finally, news. However, the kidnapper wired the radio so she could not get any Austrian stations. She could only receive Czech stations, which she could not understand. Again, the kidnapper did not want her to know that she was being looked for and that her parents cared. Around this time, she also received a Walkman. However, her most important possession that kept her from going crazy were books. When the kidnapper saw how dependent she was on these forms of entertainment, he started to use them as control tactics. By withholding these things, he was able to exert pressure on her. Anytime he, anytime he felt she behaved improperly, he could refuse her batteries, electricity, light, or take away her books. Harsh. Yeah. At eight each night, he would turn off all power to the room and she was subjected to total darkness for the next 10 to 12 hours. The kidnapper also installed an intercom system so that he can use it to check on her without having to go down there. He would also give her a certain amount of food to ration over periods of time 
scolding her over the intercom as she ran out quicker than he planned on. This is like the laziest fucking kidnapper. Well, and we're going to come to find that one of the reasons that he would have her like days on end rationing food in the intercom system and stuff was that his mom was actually there. So that's why he couldn't just be like, hey, mom, I'll be back in a second. And then because remember to open all the locks and the concrete door and all that stuff, she said it took nearly an hour to do so like. He couldn't just be like, oh, mom, I got to do this thing. So she his fucking mom was there. Yeah. His mom was there for the weekend cleaning his house and cooking food for him. So that is why, like, there would be periods of time where he would only use the intercom and, like, put down enough food in the basement (laughs) to, like, last her for, like, two to three days at a time. It's like any time he had to do something, you know, or had a guest over. It's like if fucking Cole kidnapped someone. (laughs) (laughs) what his mom would be like taking care of him doing his laundry and he'd be like shut up mom trying to like torture this chick good thing he doesn't listen to this podcast that (laughs) much good thing no one listens to this podcast (laughs) well if becca's or either becca is listening they're laughing right now Paranoid, Natasha was somewhat convinced that Wolfgang had either installed hidden cameras or had peepholes to watch her through. So she made it a point to fill every single tiny crack or hole with toothpaste to ensure he could not see her from outside. Still, she felt constantly watched. Yeah, she uses toothpaste as like putty and she also uses Nivea lotion as glue. And so everything that's like being held up in her room, like on the walls or on the bed or anything, or anytime she's making something where she's like cutting stuff out and making crafts, she uses her lotion as glue for everything. It worked. She was a very inventive little girl. Yeah, she was. She seems very smart. After a few months in captivity, that is when Wolfgang's true nature started to surface. He controlled her every facial expression and every gesture she had. He forced her to stand the way he ordered her to, and she was never allowed to look at him directly in the face. He demanded gratitude for every little thing he did for her. Can I say? Please do. Micro penis. <laughs> <laughs> this guy yeah. is a fucking. He's too much. Well, there's definitely going to be more. It gets worse. Though he completely controlled every action and movement, she did not actually feel any gratitude towards him. (laughs) Really? Well, I mean, because again, she's 10 years old. She could be... I think he truly believes he can brainwash her. And to some extent, he does. It sounds like she's a lot stronger than he is. Well, and that's what's crazy. He's 36 years old and she's 10. And she's got more willpower than he does. Yeah, mommy's still cutting the crust off his fucking peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. She writes, quote, to be sure he had not killed me or raped me as I had feared at the beginning and had nearly expected. But at no time did I forget that his actions were a crime and I could condemn him for whatever I wanted to and for which I had never had to be thankful to him. One day he ordered her to call him, <laughs> quote, maestro, which is, quote, master in English. She couldn't bring herself to do it and refuse. 
After trying for quite some time to get her to give in, he finally gave up and dropped the issue and probably complained to his mom. Well, no. I mean, the mom did not know about her, obviously. But she, he probably he was like, There's a girl I like. She won't call me master. It's not fair, he's mommy. laying on the couch with his head on her mom's lap, his mom's lap. He's stroking his hair and he's like crying into his mom's lap. Oh, this girl was mean to me today. The girl I locked up in the basement was mean to me today. Yeah. To help her cope, Natasha often pictured Wolfgang as a small, unloved child. What a stretch. <laughs> this made it so she didn't have to fear him. In her mind, it was necessary for her survival to see her kidnapper as someone who was not necessarily or essentially 100% evil. In no way does this mitigate what he did, but it allowed her to hope that he had some good in him. Having some kind of relationship with him, believing that he wasn't all evil again, was one of the only things that helped her survive. Remember, he was her only link to the outside, her only form of company, her only source of food, water, and entertainment. He was literally the keeper of the keys to her prison dungeon. Without him, she would surely starve to death. However, she never fully let herself trust him. After a few months in the dungeon, she asked him for a hug. Oh. I know, Ugh, dude. I know. That's <laughs> oh, fucking harsh. But what's crazy, too, is that she admits that. Like, she didn't have to write that in her book. And I think that that bothers people. Like, I think that's one of the reasons people, like, point at her finger and be, Stockholm Syndrome, Stockholm Syndrome. It's like, no, she didn't want a hug from him. She wanted a hug, period. You know what I mean? She's fucking 10, you know? I know, dude. It's fucking... It's... It's gnarly. It's fucking gnarly. But but people take that, you know, sentence out of context and then they're just like, oh, well, she loved him. She cared for him and all this stuff. And it's like, it's so much more than that, you know? And like, for me personally, like going through this, I forget she's fucking 10. Yeah. It's crazy. Really, really, so really young. Because again, like when we are talking about the victims of Ariel Castro and stuff, they were like 16 and up. Like they had a sense of independence and, you know, a streak of rebellion and a life, you know, a bit of a childhood. Yeah. And like this is her childhood, you know, know, and so she still wants to be held like a baby. She still wants to be consoled. She still wants to cry when she's upset, when she skins her knee, you know, and she's just like her childhood was just ripped from her. That's it's really awful. So, yeah. She asks him for a hug. She felt the necessity of human warmth. When he first agreed to embrace her, it was cold, stiff, and awkward. <laughs> not uh, unexpected. <laughs> yeah, not how he hugs his yeah. mom. <laughs> Over time, he got better at it. Natasha said she often cringed when they hugged, but she still felt it was necessary for her emotional health. I know, that She's like, oh, I hate this, but I need it. <laughs> Uh, yeah, she's it's like It's like taking medicine. It's weird. It's like she, she it's like she wants to be human. Yeah, just She doesn't want to be like, him. Her like awareness of being outside of herself and like seeing yeah. what's probably best for her at such a young age is really mind-blowing. I know and what's interesting too is that she's writing all this when she's 20, 19, 20 years old. Like she's still really young when she's reflecting on this as well. 
Yeah, it's crazy. So, <laughs> clearly, her kidnapper had great problems with closeness and touching. Wolfgang was a bit of a robot. And when the 10-year-old Natasha fell into her bouts of depression, he didn't know how to deal with her. He would try to cheer her up with games or an extra piece of fruit, but her dark mood continued despite being given extra niceties. She lived in a dungeon, so, I mean... (laughs) After all, she wasn't suffering from a lack of entertainment media. She was suffering from depression and loneliness. She was isolated. After a few days of begging, he said he would let her take a bath upstairs. Up until that point, she was washing herself in the sink down there. And he would have to help her get in sometimes. Yeah, and she also did comment that, like, you know, when you're 10 years old, not every, like, nudity thing is sexual. And so she would strip down to nothing. And she admitted, like, it wasn't sexual. Like, she said it was, like, kind of being cleaned by, like, a family friend. Like, again, like, she really, you'll see later, but, like, she definitely doesn't want to make their relationship sound sexual in any way and part of that too is kind of defending him saying that he wasn't a total rapist but he wasn't not not a total rapist either so we'll keep well you'll we'll keep i don't going. know what that means yeah she doesn't either i don't think it's <laughs> <laughs> okay but we'll get there we'll get there But she was naked around him, and it doesn't seem like he tried anything with her, especially at this point when she's like 10 years old. Well, thanks someone for that. Going upstairs carried both the feeling of excitement but also terror. She thought that maybe she could get away from him long enough up there to be able to run away. However, he said, if you scream, I'll have to hurt you. All the windows and exits have been secured with explosive devices. If you open a window, you'll end up blowing yourself up. If she failed to obey his orders, he threatened to kill her on the spot. She figured that if he was willing to kidnap her, he would probably be willing to kill her as well. On her way upstairs, she was able to really get a look at the extensive locking systems and doors that had her hermetically sealed in the basement. She realized fully at this point that no one would ever hear her scream if she had tried. Once upstairs, she continued to obey his authority. She writes, quote, I was already so deeply in my imprisonment that my imprisonment was already equally deep inside of me. She claims that if the door had been open at this point of her imprisonment, she doesn't even know if she would have run. She was so terrified. That seems like a theme with these kind of yeah that the psychological imprisonment is just as bad as the physical is is this a trap you know yeah exactly he actually reminds me potentially the most of ariel castro because he would test the girls like he would pretend to leave for work and then wait outside yeah for like a couple of minutes and then he would burst back in the door to see if anybody had tried to go down the stairs And he did that often enough that they were like, yeah, I'm not fucking trying anything. He was, you know, Wolfgang was not as bad as Ariel Castro. God, there's not a lot of people worse than Ariel Castro. But um, that psychological torture, they definitely are like on par with each other. So in the autumn of 1998, he let Natasha pick out paint for her room. 
They also built a bunk bed for her down in the dungeon. However, when she made one minor mistake, he threw the drill at her head. Okay. She ducked and it smashed into the wall behind her. That was the first time uh, that she saw real violence and hatred in his heart and knew that he had the capability to really hurt her or kill her if he had got that mad. Yeah, because remember at this point, we're probably five to six months into her abduction because she was abducted in March and now this is the autumn of 98. She hasn't seen real violence yet because he's still, again, he's psychologically grooming her, you know? she's she looks up to him as some kind of protector slash you know um you know almost like a family member like and so he's doing that on purpose and so at little by little as time goes by he's starting to now you know put down his foot be abusive be violent towards her and so again it's very confusing for her and if you think back to her childhood that kind of push and pull right it's something she's kind of used to. Do you think that Wolfgang is conscious of his grooming yes. techniques? Yeah. Yes. Or is he just awkward himself and now he's letting his guard down because he's been around her for so long and now the... Maybe a little of the, like, column the, like, the, like, the, like little passive little bitch Wolfgang is coming out. I think it's maybe both, but I think that it was very intentional. I think that... I think that sick motherfuckers like himself probably read up on the psychology because he's not dumb. Like he's not a he's no Lenny, you know, like kidnapping a girl and like holding her and stuff. I think that it's calculated. But I also think that with time and comfort, the real Wolfgang is coming out. But I also think that it is partially planned. So I think it's kind of both things happening, you know. I mean, he definitely had it planned out. Yeah, for like potentially years. He had that whole dungeon built. Yeah, and it's I mean, and, like he, like and little... he picked someone who was 10. Like, he did not pick a 16-year-old girl. Someone he can mold. Yeah, somebody he could mold. And you can't mold until you make them pliable first, which I know it sounds terrible. But I'm just saying like those first five, six months where he pretty much gave her anything she wanted besides her freedom, which is ironic, right? I think that he was grooming her. I think he was making her pliable. And then now all of a sudden, literally, the facade is crashing around her. And she, again, like very confused. And as you'll see, like, this is just where it kind of begins. That first Christmas with her kidnapper, to her surprise, he pretty much fulfilled most of her wishes in terms of material goods. What's so strange, though, is that though he provided her with the plastic Christmas tree and ornaments and gifts under the Christmas tree, he wasn't willing to let her go. Obviously, having her there under his control was totally getting him off. He was never going to let her go. For Christmas, Wolfgang gave her a small educational computer so she could continue studying drawing pad, colors to draw with, and a paint-by-numbers set. The only thing he didn't get her off her list was turpentine, probably afraid that she would accidentally breathe in the fumes and die in the dungeon. How considerate. (laughs) On her first New Year's Eve in captivity, Natasha spent the night in total darkness. Party. (laughs) Fuck. Her kidnapper went to go be with his one friend to set off fireworks. 
Five or six New Year's later, she would get to witness him setting off fireworks outside while she was inside the house. Then, when she was 16 years old, he even let her into the garden to watch the fireworks from there. Quote, but that was a time when my captivity had become a fixed component of myself. That's why the kidnapper dared to take me out into the garden in the first place. He knew that by then my inner prison had grown such high walls that I would not see the opportunity to escape. After about a year of imprisonment in her tiny dungeon, Natasha's visits upstairs began to take place on a more regular basis. About every two weeks, she was allowed to take a shower upstairs, and sometimes she would even be able to watch TV in the evening. Although she enjoyed the upstairs more than her prison downstairs, she felt tethered to the kidnapper by an invisible leash. When he got up, she had to get up. He demanded that she keep her head down and never lift her eyes. He had also made her fear the world outside and believe that she was not missed or loved out there. On the weekends, Wolfgang was often gone and Natasha was forced to spend over 48 hours by herself. In 1999, when Natasha turned 11, the kidnapper put a prohibition on her talking about her family or past at all. He also refused to give her a mirror so she could not see herself. Then, the ultimate brainwashing. He wanted her to pick out a new name. <laughs> this guy has gone full CIA, MK Ultra shit. Yeah, and this is also what Errol Castro did, especially after the birth of Amanda Berry's kid. Um, he made everybody, because he didn't want the little girl, because he wanted to bring the little girl out and about, you know? And so he didn't want her parroting their names, so they all had to pick new names. So, at this point, Natasha was dead and gone. He said, quote, You are no longer Natasha. Now you belong to me. She figured she always hated the name anyways, so at first she wasn't opposed to getting rid of it. The kidnapper suggested Maria because both of his grandmothers were called Maria. Although she didn't like the suggestion, she agreed because Maria was her middle name anyway. <laughs> yeah. When he realized that, it didn't sit well with him. She eventually went with Bibiana. Oh, oh. Bibian. Uh, it's like it sounds like Vivian, but it's Bibiana. Bibian. Did he make this Bibian. up? Bibian. Uh, no, she did. Okay. Say it one more time. Bibian. It sounds like Vivian, but like Very it's, it's B I B I A N N E or something. Bibian. Okay. Yeah. Well, there you, you go. You only have to say it like one more time. <laughs> Bibian. Sounds like a natural spring water. Yeah, it does, actually. <laughs> <laughs> or it's like Evian, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, I guess. <laughs> For the next seven years, Bibian became her new identity, even though the kidnapper never succeeded in entirely wiping out her old one. On a cold, clear December night, Wolfgang granted her a wish she had been asking for, a moment outside under the sky. So she'd been, been thinking about that for a long time. Yeah, at this point, it's been at least like a year and seven months or so. Fuck. Yeah. That's she insane. has not seen it. She has not been outside, yeah. Could you imagine? No. 
That's why, like, that's why, like, sometimes I kind of like reading these books, too, because I'm like, yeah, that's worse, you know, like, than what we're going through in quarantine or like, uh, I read about the birth. Whose birth was it? Maybe it was, was it Amanda Berry or one of those? And I was like, oh, well, that's not going to be as bad as mine. So, you know, like, I don't know. It makes it gives me a weird sense of comfort that somebody else has been through it in worse conditions. Well, we haven't gotten there yet, babe. Okay, yeah, please don't please don't lock me in a basement and make me give yeah, like make me like chew the umbilical cord off. Okay. <laughs> so to prepare her for going outside, he said, quote, "If you scream, I will kill you. If you run, I will kill you. I will kill anyone who hears you or sees you." If you are so dumb as to draw attention to yourself, I'll kill you. <laughs> yeah, he It's really... like if Jason Voorhees could speak. <laughs> he burdened her with the responsibility for anyone she might call for help, and she believed him. Outside, she felt free, but described what she felt like was as being on a movie set. It seemed too flat and unreal. It had been well over a year and a half since she'd been outside. In the year 2000, Natasha ceased to be a child anymore. Settle down. Are you ready Pe- settle, for the, yeah. settle down, people. Future she, dad right here. Yeah, yeah. She got her first period. It completely freaked the kidnapper out, as it would freak me out, as it's going to freak me out. <laughs> <laughs> I'll deal with it. <laughs> he had been so careful to hide any trace of her DNA, any piece of hair, lint, and wiped away all fingerprints. So when she was on her period upstairs, he would lay down newspaper wherever she sat. Like she's a fucking (laughs) hamster or like a lizard or something. He would lay down newspaper before she sat down. Isn't that? that, uh, Hamster. Yeah. Yeah. Fuck. He was terrified that the police may come back and would find her DNA in his home somewhere. Yeah, because remember, they've already been to his house once. You know, he's on their radar. Maybe even twice at this point. No, it should have been twice because the second time they would have nabbed him. What also came along with not being a child was having the little freedom she had in the dungeon. Wolfgang expected her to perform cleaning tasks around his home under his strict supervision and judgment. The house he lived in was his parents' house from the 70s. He kept everything as it was, but he was renovating the upstairs. At this point, he didn't have a regular job. He would just get together with that one friend he had from time to time to help him renovate apartments before people moved in. So his flexible and open schedule made it possible for him to practically be tethered to Natasha at all times. Natasha was his only worker, and he began training her in that second year of imprisonment. Though she was glad to get out of her basement space, the back-breaking work upstairs was grueling. On the positive side... Her muscles grew and she could move around. However, with this new tiny freedom came more explosive outbursts from the kidnapper. Once she didn't hand him a putty knife fast enough. So he threw a, uh, so he threw a bag of cement at her that almost knocked her out. She was able to exploit the situation to get treats from him. After this, the violent outbursts and abuse ramped up. He burned her. He hit her. He kicked her and he verbally abused her, especially about housework. 
Basically, he felt Natasha couldn't live up to a standard of clean, i.e. his mother's standard of clean. Fucking douchebag. Yeah. She said that there was no method or system to his beatings. And she said in the book, like, I could respect that. But the fact that he was so random and it was so uncontrolled that it made her hate him more. I bet he hit like a girl. No offense, girls. <laughs> but it doesn't matter. He's so much bigger than her at this point because she's still really she's like young. like 11, 12. She's like 12 years old at this point. And also, you're going to see that he's going to start starving and restricting her big time so that she can't fight back. But she still does. Sometimes he would console her tears and other times he would grab her by the throat and practically drown her in the sink to get her to stop. So again, it was just like she never knew which way it was going to go, you know. He also started to punch her in the head. This is about the point where Natasha learned how to compartmentalize, that is, separate herself from the abuse. At 14, Natasha began to fight back a bit. There were no more apologies or sweets for her anymore. So she didn't, she just, so the only thing that like made her feel good was like to basically tell him to fuck off. So there are ways that she was able to do that. This was also the age at which the kidnapper really began restricting her food because he wanted her skinny and weak. Because she's getting big. Like she's, she's actually going to be able to like challenge him. Yeah. Now she believes Wolfgang was actually battling anorexia himself and projected it onto her as well. In the mornings, he would only allow her two spoonfuls of cereal with milk and tea. The other rule in the house, and then he would make her do backbreaking work like renovating the house. And then the other rule in the house that they had was that every single meal that like you'll you'll see that like his mom would prepare or was really just meant for one person. The rule was he gets three quarters of it and she gets one quarter of it. He forced her to meticulously weigh herself each day, always wanting the scale to go down. If the scale ever went up, he would call her a fat pig, basically. At 14, she weighed significantly less than she did at 10. Were you going to say something? I was going to say, this guy really pisses me off. Yeah. One of the books on Wolfgang's shelf was, can you guess? Sweat into the Oldies with Richard Simmons. <laughs> That's not a book. <laughs> I don't think. Uh, Hitler's Mein Kampf. Woo! This twat knows how to read. He admired Hitler and felt that he was right to gas the Jews. His words, not mine. Okay. Now this story is really taking a turn. Yeah. His contemporary political idol was Jörg Haider, the right-wing leader of Austria's Freedom Party. Wolfgang felt the need to denigrate foreigners and use racist language. However, Natasha did not feel like he had real nationalist socialist attitudes. She kind of just felt like he was a fucking poser. She said that what he said sounded artificial, like they were parroted phrases, but he had deeply internalized them. To him, she was someone he could order around as he pleased. He felt like a member of the master race and she was a second class human being. All right. All right. All right. All whoa, right. Whoa, 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 all what? right. If you're fucking going down that road, buddy, you're the fucker with dark hair and dark eyes. And she's the blonde hair. I don't. Blue but the, that's the thing. It's like this proto 
Nazi socialist. All like, these twats are full of shit. Oh, totally. Absolutely. But like it was just like the fucking people in the United States that are like the fake Nazi people. It's just like it just looks powerful. I think he likes the idea of the idea of being powerful, but is fully aware that he is not powerful. Weak people love the idea of being powerful. Exactly. And I mean, and why else do you think he picked a 10 year old girl to imprison? Because he is a human vulva. <laughs> hey. No disrespect to vulvas. I'm sorry. I love them. <laughs> well, I love one. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for specifying. <laughs> <laughs> um, so because he kind of felt that, you know, she was the second class citizen, which ironically she was blonde naturally and he was not. He made her shave her head and she worked nearly naked. She was a pitiful sight, skinny, pale, covered in bruises and lacerations, bald, hungry, and with only one with only a pair of knickers and a cap, sometimes a t-shirt or a pair of leggings, never at the same time. Obviously, this turned Wolfgang on to some degree, but he also believed that Natasha would never try to run away looking as she did. So he did it very much on purpose. He knew she was like self-conscious and stuff. And he made her feel so he he groomed her to be that way. And so he yeah, would like, really you know, she up. would catch sights of herself and be scared and then just be like, there's no way. Like if I ran away looking like this, I would, you know, no one would listen to me. In the seventh chapter of her book, Natasha gets really like existential and philosophical and so uh, rather than like try to just sum it all up I took big chunks of it because I think that she said things really well and, and there's just no way I could rephrase them so she writes nothing is all black or all white and nobody is all good or all evil that goes for the kidnapper and also she does refer to him as both the kidnapper not her kidnapper because you know she does. She wants to distance herself somewhat from him, but she also does refer to him as Pricklepill and Wolfgang throughout. So I kind of vacillate between those three as well. So she says, and that goes for the kidnapper. These are the words that people don't like to hear from a, from an abduction victim, because the clearly defined concept of good and evil is turned on its head, a concept that people are all too willing to accept. So as to not lose their way in a world full of shades of gray. When I talk about it, I can see the confusion and rejection on the faces of many who were not there. The empathy they felt for my fate freezes and is turned to denial. People who have no insight into the complexities of imprisonment deny me the ability to judge my own experiences by pronouncing the two words Stockholm Syndrome. So basically she just talks about how much she fucking hates that like her name is correlated with that because again Stockholm syndrome to like the layman basically means like you love your like you learn to love and want to be with your abductor basically right? right like the Patty Hearst thing and the Stockholm syndrome incident with the bank robbers in Stockholm but Patty Hearst is probably the most typical example of Stockholm syndrome. Do you know that story? Yeah. Yeah. Refresh us. No, 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 no. It's fine. Okay, fine. Don't. Okay. Well, this is already going to be long enough. We don't need to go into something else. But basically, she said, but 
that that by reducing her down to those two words, they were victimizing her again. So she's like, when you use those words to describe my situation, you are making me a victim twice. It's just kind of pigeonholing. Exactly. And she hates, she doesn't want to be reduced to those two words. And she brings it up multiple times throughout the book of just how much that term is overused, how much she hates that term. And, you know, and she definitely calls back to like other kidnapped victims that she feels a lot of sympathy for. Just saying that, like, it's so easy to reduce victims down to those two words and not really understand the complexity of their survival, you know? Uh, Yeah, I mean, there's so many of these kind of stories. It's crazy. And, like, I feel like people just get a little bit... um, They just want to make everything black and white. Numb. Yeah. You know, like, there's... You can't get into the nooks and crannies of every story. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons I got kind of sucked into this one and I wanted to conclude so much of it is that she does such a good job of getting into nooks and crannies, unlike other memoirs that I've read, which other memoirs, I hate to say it because it's not that they're not good. It's that it's very much about the abuse and the actions that they're abused, which obviously is a huge part of it. But Natasha actually doesn't spend that much time on the terrible things that happened to her. She spends a lot of the time reflecting on and like thinking through and philosophizing about. She's a very philosophical yeah, person. Yeah, she really is. Yeah, it's actually, it's a very interesting perspective on this whole yeah, and again, situation. She, it's so crazy because she started writing this when she was like 19 and 20 years old, like right after obviously as a way to like cope. I think she may have even written it with her therapist. She's an old soul. I don't yeah. know if people believe in reincarnation or anything like that. Yeah. I don't know. Old souls. Look into it. <laughs> she also writes, getting closer to the kidnapper is not an illness. Creating a cocoon of normality within the framework of a crime is not a syndrome. Just the opposite. It is a survival strategy in a situation with no escape. And much more true to reality than the sweeping categorization of criminals as bloodthirsty beasts and victims, as helpless lambs that society refuses to look beyond. She spends a lot of time studying the complexities of Wolfgang Pricklepill, especially the relationship he had with his mother, who would often visit and stay on the weekends. That's why she had to be held down there. She actually thought he was gone, but he was in the house with his mom. She figured this out by looking at some mail and she figured out that his mom's name was Waltrude um, Pricklepill and just based on some mail that was kind of laying out. And she eventually realized that like Wolfgang and the mom actually switched houses. So like she owned this, you know, three story nice house with a big backyard and a nice dungeon yeah, and a nice dungeon in Strasshof. And which is like a suburb of Vienna. And he had like a tiny apartment in Vienna. And she basically, I don't, I'm assuming it it suited his needs more than hers, but they switched. So she lived at his apartment in Vienna and he lived at the big house out in Strasshof. How would he work that one? I I mean, well, as you'll see, she's going to, she'll give him anything that he wants. So whenever Natasha would come back up, from you know the long weekends that his mother was there, there were many signs that Waltra- Waltroud or Waltrude had been there. So 
she kind of began to think of Wolfgang's mother as this like invisible friend. And she would kind of have this conversation in her head that was like, oh, thanks for coming over this weekend and cleaning up, you know, like, oh, that's so nice that you left a cake on the counter. Like she would kind of do this thing where she was having like this invisible friendship with this woman who had no idea she had existed. And she said it really kind of helped her cope. Like she had this friend, you know, it's so sad and sweet. The mom would come over on the weekends and like scrub and vacuum and do all the stuff, right? Yeah. So the house would be spotless by the time she got back up on Monday, right? But then he would immediately be like, you need to start cleaning the house from head to toe starting right now. And so like he had Natasha cleaning the house during the week and his mom cleaned the house on weekends. She said there was never a speck of dust anywhere. And she kind of started to think of Wolfgang's mother as like her competitive cleaning partner, like who could outdo who kind of. And it was like this weird little competition she had in her head. So she actually didn't hate Wolfgang's mother at all. I mean, I'm obviously she I'm had something to do with him being the way he was, but for the most part in her head it was like she provided the womb. <laughs> yeah. This it's it's very strange. But it reminds me of this part of the story reminds me of that movie Secretary. You ever watched Oh that? yeah, yeah, with Maggie Gyllenhaal and the other guy. Rare. So she does at certain points almost defend Wolfgang. So she does like mention that the dad died like a decade or more earlier when he was like 24 years old. And as a result, the mom just clung to Wolfgang as like her new partner kind of. And so that's one of the reasons like maybe he is the way he is, is that there's a lot of like maybe guilt, you know, that like she doesn't have her partner in life anymore so he is her new partner you know because he can't find his own so he might as well be hers his mom's i guess yeah a 36 year old man living with their mom. mama's little hitler <laughs> he probably lived off of her money as well they she couldn't prove that but she also did find out natasha found out that wolfgang w- <laughs> so he was essentially unemployed right as all fucking you what's in cells yeah <laughs> i don't even know yeah what this i don't guy even know is. what to call him <laughs> yeah so she said that he was smart <laughs> he was smart enough to play dumb so he like you know like when you're on unemployment you like work with often like agencies to that will help you find jobs yeah and as like long as you're going out to job interviews they'll let you collect unemployment right so he was purposely going on job interviews and fucking them up and acting really stupid so he, he didn't have to work and that's it, he, the oldest trick in the book yeah and so but like the unemployment place was happy with like wanted they continued giving him the unemployment checks yeah, because like, he was going on us. the interviews but like he wasn't ever getting a job and like she said he was playing dumb but there's also a really good chance he was just legit not getting jobs but he also knew that he needed to be at the house 24 hours a day because he needed that control over Natasha. You know, it's so fucking weird. And then on top of that, she doesn't think he was paying for the house at all that the mom was probably paying for both mortgages or whatever. You think? So not only How can was you pay not, your rent or mortgage when you don't have a job. But he had unemployment. Or income. 
I mean, so but he had, how he much? Had, he had I don't know. He had unemployment checks coming in. He had mommy paying for a lot of things, and he was doing these under the table jobs with his one friend. You know, I think the friend's name is Halts Copeful or something. Um, I don't. He doesn't. He's totally innocent in this. I mean, as is the mom, which is why you know, like part of me is like I don't want to bring in totally innocent people, but he was in the documentary. It's it is that same guy. Sometimes Wolfgang would get into these weird moods and claim that he was an Egyptian god that Natasha must obey and like praise him like herself to. And he would demand, you know, because before he demanded the maestro thing, but now he was demanding Lord. (laughs) This is this guy's. I know he's sick. (laughs) He's next level. (laughs) <laughs> but like but seriously if maestro never held why did he think that to even try lord out you know what i mean he should have he should have went with overlord yeah so of course she refused and then he demanded that she kneel before him and when <laughs> i know oh my god and when she refused that he would force her face to the ground and hurt her and when she was down on the ground he would kick and beat her but then again, you know, like I was telling telling you, like she was finding ways to be rebellious because at this point he's completely restricted her from food. Whereas before he would use sweets as like a tactic, you know, like if you do this, I'll give you this thing or like he yeah, threw right. the bag of cement at her and she's like, fine, give me a package of gummy bears, you know, and then I won't hate you anymore. And so she kind of realized that like she was never going to get anything out of him ever again. So the only like joy she could feel was telling him basically to fuck off. Even if it meant like getting extra abuse. So anytime, (laughs) anytime he demanded that she call him like Lord or Maestro, she called him criminal or darling. (laughs) (laughs) Darling. Or honey. And then she would be punished by time alone in the basement or with starvation. But to her, it was often worth it. It's all she had, really. Yeah. I like I like her sarcasm. Yeah, yeah, me too. Because what I love too is that she doesn't have an audience. The only audience yeah, is herself. No, it's for you know? herself. Yeah, it's yeah, awesome. it's totally for herself. It, and, and you to, know, and it to burns that him. fucking. Yeah, oh, up totally. Too. Yeah. So anytime he beat her, she forgave him. Like she refused to be mad at him, and that also pissed him off oh, too. Totally. I think. Totally. And she said it was the only way she wouldn't let him destroy her because if she hated his guts. And didn't forgive him, he could he would have ultimate power over her, and she didn't want to give him that. Yeah, no, she she's and again she's like fucking fourteen. I know, and you know? she's playing the game like, like she's a, a champ. Yeah. <laughs> so to her knowledge, Wolfgang never had a relationship with a woman outside of his mother, and what he craved could not easily be obtained. He wanted to be a king. He said that. He said he wanted to be a king and ha- have a slave as a wife. There is one point in the book, and I couldn't find it again, but it really stuck with me because I think that he had these moments of fucking brutal honesty with her. And she was like, why why do you keep me down here? And he was like, I always wanted to know what it was like to have a slave. Like, he said that. You know? Yeah. Who says that? But like... That is utter and pure honesty. It's not like it was just like, oh, because I love you or like, oh, because I'm saving you. He's like, no, I wanted a slave. And then that's what I got. Who thinks about these things? Apparently him. So she also kind of just based on knowing him for that long so well, 
she knew that he wanted to be basically in the 1950s or at least a perverted version of what he thought was the 1950s. In the long run, Natasha figured out that all he really wanted was two things, approval and affection, and she would never give him those things. And it seemed ironic because a forced prisoner would never be able to give him those things. He thought that he could get it from her. That's how naive he was. After she was 14, the kidnapper made her spend nights with him in his bed upstairs, literally zip tied to him with the door locked. He literally would take a zip tie and zip tie their wrists together. She could not escape. And and she said anytime she tried to wriggle her wrist away from his wrist, it would like cut into her skin. He would wake up and get pissed off, you know, so like wasn't worth trying to even move. In terms of sexual abuse, this is the one part of her private life that Natasha did not want to share in her book. Newspaper headlines claimed that she was a sex slave. She doesn't want to even address those stories. She says that he subjected her to minor sexual assaults. She said that a lot of the stuff he did was was not about sex. Rather, it was about power. Everything he did was to humiliate and overpower her. So she like... I thought she was going to spend more time in the book about it, but she was like, let me hold that one thing private to myself. That's not for you. Like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to talk about sex in this, which I think is like really interesting because all of the other books, the Lives with Smart book, the JC Dugard book. That's kind of how they sell them, right? Yeah. That it again is, which is why, you know, at the very beginning of part one, I said like, she's not a perfect victim. We want the salacious, And I say when we want, it's like we want to be a voyeur in that very wrong and dirty world. I mean, why do you think I fucking read these things? You know what I mean? Because there's just part of me that like is just like fascinated and repelled by it. But one of the reasons I love her book is she's like, yeah, I'm not going to give that to you. Like I've already given so much of myself away. I'm not going to give it like fuck you. The summer that she turned 14, she tried to kill herself for the first time. That was the only escape she could have fathomed. And I think she tried to do it by choking herself with different articles of clothing and like passing out. But then she would like wake up and realize she hadn't done it. After that, Wolfgang began to understand that she needed a bit more if she was going to survive. He allowed her brief moments in the backyard garden and to sunbathe. One time, he knew his neighbors would be gone, so he let her swim in their pool. These minor privileges reminded Natasha that life was worth holding on to until she could escape. She was grateful to Wolfgang for these tiny moments. This is the kind of stuff that the newspaper took and ran with. Hence, Stockholm Syndrome. Like, she was grateful to her kidnapper, right? It's like... Well, yeah, you would be too if like you weren't allowed to leave a dungeon for a year and then he get lets you go swim in somebody's yeah. backyard, you know? It's taken a little out of context. Exactly. There. Quote, our society needs criminals like Wolfgang Pricklepill in order to give a face to the evil that lies within and to split it off from society itself. It needs the images of cellar dungeons so as to not have to see the many homes in which violence rears its conformist bourgeois head. Society uses the victims of sensational cases such as mine in order to divest itself of the responsibility for the many named as victims of daily crimes. 
Victims nobody helps, even when they ask for help. End quote. For the next few years, the home renovations and constant cleaning made up a routine for both of them. But when Natasha turned 16, the renovations were nearly done. She was forced to cook meals for him when she hadn't eaten herself, and he did it on purpose. He did not offer anything that she, uh, that she cooked for him. He watched her make it like a hawk, criticizing her every move. Yeah, he would just sit over her shoulder and be like, that's not how my mom does it. That's, yeah, not, how not, that's exactly. not how mom does it. And so one time she got fucking sick of it and she said, well, if she does it so well, then why don't you have her do it? And he threw her down into the cellar to let her starve for days with no light, no food and no water. And so she just said that like it was like it was probably like two or three days. No light, no food, no water. Can you imagine? That's worse than solitary confinement. At least in solitary confinement. That is like being in the hole. But like solitary confinement, you have a light source and food at least two times a day. Oh. No, you get food in solitary confinement, 100%. It's probably shitty food, but you, you, do, you do get food in solitary confinement. That would be illegal if, they, if you didn't. So literally nothing for like three days and then she heard the the door open these things dropped to the ground and she like felt around and like put her hand on one of them and she realized he had just thrown a bag of carrots down there and so she like kind of freaked out and ate all the carrots really quick and it like made her stomach like really sour but then he let her back up at this point and she like looked herself in the mirror and she was like yellow and she doesn't quite know if it was because of like the bruises, the lack of light, or if it was from eating so many carrots. It's all the keratin. Yeah. And so she was just saying that like. I've heard that it can was, happen. Yeah. Like if you eat a lot of carrots or like a lot of beets or something, you can like actually change the color of your skin. And but like, if you haven't eaten in a long time, it wouldn't take that many to do that. No. Probably. And so she was just like. Because she never looked at herself that long in the mirror because he didn't allow her to, you know, she kind of wondered like what I'm sure it was a combination of things, but she was kind of like, well, that's not good. Right. And she also was noticing like all these blue veins all over her skin because her skin was so pale that it was becoming like transparent. Well, yeah, and she she's could like see the veins. Yeah. She hasn't been outside. So at this point, she's five, six. And a hundred pounds. And remember when she was, and this she's sixteen at this point. And when she was ten, she was a hundred pounds. So she hasn't, she's grown like a foot since then, but hasn't gained any weight. And he still thought she was too fat. So there's this one story. I'm just gonna just tell it real quick, where he wanted her to basically make him fish and chips. And there were like three or four slabs of fish. And so she was like, oh, maybe he's letting me make enough so that we can eat it together. You know, I can get one piece and he gets three. Right. That's the rule. And so she's making the fish and the whole time he's just like, my mom could do it better. Blah, 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 blah. You know, the usual. And when she gets close to the end, she was like, oh, this will be a nice meal for us. And he like laughs at her and is like, for us, like you're not going to get shit. And so she fucking loses it because she's fucking starving at this point because I think it was just a couple days after the carrot incident. And so she shoves a piece in her mouth and he like smacks it out of her mouth and he like puts his fingers in his mouth and her mouth and he like and so she falls to the ground and starts to like and he's like beating and kicking her at this point. 
and she is like struggling to get over to the other piece of fried fish that the, that's on the ground and she shoves it in her face and she starts she's just swallowing it because she's just like I need to eat and so he fucking picks her up he takes her over the sink and he forces his fingers down her throat until she throws up and then he like puts her head underwater for like a minute and she's like drowning and choking and throwing up all at the same time and then throws her down in the basement again so like all right i know all right right, isn't that sad all right right. back up back up back up so frying fish in a skillet right yeah oh that involves like a what like a cast iron skillet yeah hot oil I know. It would be nice if she could have done something he to him. He just bashed his fucking cunt in the face. Yeah, that wasn't going to happen. But remember, psychological, physical, like, it was everything. What do you got to lose? Well, you'll see. Learn so, me. <laughs> I know. It would have been nice if she could. He also, like, made sure she never had scissors or, like, a knife near her. And if she did, he was, like, probably zip-tied to her. So at this point, she did try to make a few more suicide attempts. Um, she tried she didn't have access to a knife obviously but she had access to at least like a thick sewing needle and so she tried to cut her wrist with a sewing needle that is brutal and then she kind of realized that like she kind of got into the self-harm thing for a second because she concentrated on the outside pain and she kind of forgot about her inside pain for a little bit and so i think she became a little bit of a cutter at this point but she doesn't really talk about it very much And then another time she tried to inhale a bunch of smoke to die, like carbon monoxide poisoning. Was that, is that what it would be? Yeah, but carbon monoxide's not. More like fumes? Yeah, it's. Yeah, she tried to die from smoke inhalation and it didn't work. And then she got worried because she was like, oh, dude, he's going to smell all the smoke the next time he comes in the basement. And he did and he was pissed at her. And he thought she was trying to burn down this the concrete room like it didn't occur to him that she was trying to commit suicide he thought she was trying to burn her way out of there but she was just like whatever like i think that was her last suicide attempt was the inhalation thing because she just is like i have no tools at my disposal to like try to kill myself so at 17 she realized that he was almost as much of a prisoner as she was he was suffering from pathological paranoia his fear of his crime being discovered and his dream of a normal life where they could be outside together. Oh, yeah. So one thing that he did was that, like, sometimes he would shove her outside naked. This is, again, more like psychological torture where, like, she he would make her feel terrible about herself. Like, she was fat and disgusting and no one loved her and she was... She, you know, was just, you know, he would just really denigrate her and then he would push her outside completely naked daring her to run away and then she wouldn't you know so he began at this point so a lot of the she goes into a lot of detail but at this point really it's a lot of like her going on drives with him and she start he starts letting her go to the store because at this point she's seven years into her captivity you know she's 17 years old and he let her go to the drugstore this one time to like pick out one thing and like she said that like she looked at the woman that was checking her out you know of the at the register and the woman said can I help you anything else and she like had this moment of like no I'm fine and then she was like oh shit I could have like said something you know so she's like okay the next time I see someone I'm gonna say something and then like 
they get stopped for like a traffic like stop or whatever oh, like a checkpoint like a checkpoint yeah. and the officer basically was like are you guys good and she was just like do i say something you know she's like trying to like i she like didn't even know what she was just she's like signaling right yeah no she didn't know what to do so again these outside encounters probably proved to wolfgang that he was winning he had officially broken her in his mind in 2005 she started documenting the daily beatings hoping to be able to use them in court someday so like she did include a lot of like her diary entries at this point and like he did he beat the shit out of her every single day seven days a week when she was 17 because she was just at this point more rebellious stronger and just getting more and more fucking fed up with his shit with the many opportunities she had to yell and scream to someone about her situation she never did and not only did that anger her but she realized that she just couldn't maybe he had broken her so so i'm going to talk about the infamous skiing trip when she was 17 years old um it was something that she wanted to do i'm not going to make too much of it because it wasn't as significant as I thought it was. I mean, it's pretty crazy that they went on like a, a stay the night skiing trip together. But she said that there was at one point she went to the bathroom and she tried to ask a woman for help in there. But the only thing that came out was like this squeak, you know, she couldn't even talk. And then she found out later on, like when, um, you know, she escapes, like that woman came forward as someone who like saw her in the bathroom and she figured out that she was from the Netherlands and she didn't speak German. So even if she tried to say something to this woman, Fuck. it wouldn't have mattered because remember, it's Europe. I think that they maybe I, I didn't look it up. I think maybe they're in Switzerland at this point or something. So it's just like in Europe, you know. It's so easy to move among countries like Hungary. And Dutch people are fucking weird. They would probably wouldn't help you anyways. <laughs> but like she just said that, you know, there was another time too where she was talking, um, where he was talking with someone and they didn't speak German either. So it's just like, even if she, a lot of the opportunities she had to say something to someone, they didn't even speak German anyways, you know? But it's not like Austrian and German are that different. Well, no, German and Austrian are like, she speaks German, period. But she doesn't speak Dutch. But, okay. And okay. she doesn't speak like Hungarian. Hungarian, or I could see. But Dutch is not a big stretch from German. Well. Just saying. Nonetheless, she tried and nothing came out. So soon after this trip was her 18th birthday, that magical date where everything was supposed to change for her. Remember? She remembered this, and it was high time that she kept that promise to herself. The abuse and enslavement continued for the next year. Her 18th birthday came and went. Soon after, she told him, and I kind of pieced this together. There's three different parts, but it's just really crazy. She, she claims that this, she said this to him in so many words. You have brought a situation upon us in which only one of us can make it through alive. I really am grateful for you not killing me and that you have taken such good care of me. That is very nice of you, but you can't force me to stay with you. I am my own person with my own needs. This situation must come to an end. It is only natural that I have to go. You should have counted on that from the beginning. One of us has to die. There's no other way out anymore. Either you kill me or let me go. 
By now, I have tried to kill myself so many times, and here I am, the victim. You would actually be better if you would kill yourself. You won't be able to find any other way out anyway. If you killed yourself, all of these problems would suddenly be gone. She said that to him. I like it. And I think she said it right around her 18th birthday, too. It's like right before she blew out the candles. Because I I think it's... (laughs) I think it's that idea of magical thinking. You know what I mean? Of yeah, just yeah. like I manifesting have, your will. Yeah, I have to tell this to you because it is going to happen, and I need you to be aware of it so you're not surprised when it happens. She's way stronger than him mentally. Yeah, I admire her will. You so, go, girl. <laughs> he didn't beat her for saying this. He hardly acknowledged her, though she wanted she, to. He t- was like, "Fuck, she's right." <laughs> yeah. Though she wanted to take the words back, she said she meant them. She vowed that the next opportunity she had to run away, she would take no matter what. So on the 3,096th day of her captivity, on August 23rd, 2006, about five months after her 18th birthday, Wolfgang took Natasha out to the backyard to clean out his van he was planning to sell. While she was vacuuming, he took a call on his cell. Because of the sound of the machine, he couldn't hear the person on the other end, so he actually went inside of the house to take it. She couldn't believe it. Quote, I was alone. For the first time since the beginning of my imprisonment, the kidnapper had let me get out of his sight while outside. I stood frozen in front of the car for a brief second holding the vacuum cleaner a feeling of paralysis spreading through my arms and legs. My rib cage felt as if it were encased in an iron corset. I could hardly breathe. Slowly, my hand holding the vacuum cleaner sank. Disordered, confused images ran through my head. Priclopil coming back and finding me gone. He's looking for me and then going on a shooting spree. A train speeding along. My lifeless body. His lifeless body. Police cars. My mother, my mother's smile. Then everything happened so fast. With superhuman strength, I tore myself out of the paralyzing quicksand that was tightening around my legs. The voice of my other self hammered in my head. If you had just been abducted yesterday, you would run now. You have to act as if you don't know your kidnapper. He is a stranger. Run, run, damn it, run. I dropped the vacuum cleaner and bolted to the garden gate. It was open. So she runs away. Yay! She she bolted towards three people and panted at them. You have to help me. I need a mobile to call the police, please. They stared at her blankly. An older man, a child, and a third person, maybe the boy's father. The older man said, we can't, and walked around her. The oldest man turned back around and apologized for not having his cell phone on him in order to help. She began to cry. And... I, you know, living in Portland for as long as I have, lots of p- crazy people come up to you talking crazy shit. And and you kind of learn to ignore it to some extent. You get desensitized to it. Yeah. For sure. But I think if someone came up to me pleading for help, I might. And be, not just like money or something or drugs or. Or yeah. talking crazy shit. But yeah. I mean, like, yeah. I know. I, I think about that, too. I think that the fear potentially as well is that 
the kidnapper or the murderer or the person attacking the person is maybe right behind them. So like if you help, you could be part of it as well, kind of, you know? Well, plus like if you get involved and there's like, you know, like the people in the max like a couple years ago, like, yeah, well, that's what I'm trying saying to get is involved that and then end ended up getting like stabbed damage. to death. Yeah. Or if you fuck up the person, they can sue you. Like yeah. there's a bunch of, and it also reminds me of that story. It's the Mary Vincent story where Lawrence Singleton was this fucking gnarly rapist murderer guy. And he assaulted Mary Vincent and he raped her and cut her arms off with a hatchet and threw her down a hill. Oh, fuck yeah. And she basically was going to bleed to death, basically. She was covered in blood with no arms and she crawled somehow back up to the road it took like eight hours for her to do that and then when she was on the road she was trying to get cars to stop and no one would stop for her that's insane yeah and to clarify when i said oh fuck yeah that wasn't like an oh fuck yeah that was like oh that's fuck gnarly. i remember yeah. that yeah that's yeah fucked. yeah yeah totally just to clarify then, on my end i'm not a cunt yeah i mean i the, am but not the, the people that ended up saving her i believe they had a pickup truck so they like because a lot of people are like well i don't want it, blood to get in my backseat yeah it's like the end of texas chainsaw <laughs> minus two arms <laughs> but she they let her in they were on their honeymoon i believe it was a couple Ugh. and they were on their honeymoon and they let her into the back of their pickup truck and took her to either like the nearest hospital or the nearest police station i think they took her to a hospital but well yeah they will never forget their honeymoon i know i'm like i if i saw that we <laughs> we would have a. let her into the car i might have to put down some newspaper though yeah like a hamster we call that pulling a wolfgang <laughs> I feel like we're going to be pulling lots of Wolfgangs around the house here soon when we have our little kid. <laughs> we just put down newspaper wherever she is. Fuck diapers, newspapers. That's the future. <laughs> <laughs> so she begins to cry when no one would help her. She's thinking, what if Wolfgang caught up to her? What if no one believed her? She jumped into someone's backyard to get off the street and rang the doorbell. So a woman comes to the door and has her stay in the backyard while she calls the police. And she actually says, why did you pick me? Like she's irritated and pissed off, but she still helps her. But like Natasha very vividly remembers her saying, Ugh, why did you choose me of all of the people in this neighborhood to choose? Why did you choose me? Yeah, like the view is on. I'm like doing shit. <laughs> and at this point, like this is in her backyard protected by fencing you know what i mean like i wouldn't i would have maybe done you know like made her stay in the backyard just in case she it was like a ploy or something to get into her house but like i don't know she like natasha basically just says like she seemed really irritated so natasha tells this woman her name you know and that she's been missing for eight years and this is the first time she speaks her name in seven years and the woman couldn't give a fuck, basically, but did call the police. Two young officers entered the woman's backyard, and they yelled for her to put her hands in the air. She told them who she was. In the back of her mind, she could hear the taunting voice of the kidnapper. Nobody will miss you. They are all glad that you're gone. She asked for a blanket to be put over her so that she wouldn't have to see Wolfgang if he came by. 
She crouched in the back seat of the police cruiser. When they got to the station, they immediately started interrogating her. In hindsight, she felt that they should have given her more space in a less hectic environment. I don't think they believed her, for one, at well, this point. At this the, point especially I don't the think... two young officers, no. They were very hesitant. So they're like, oh, another crazy Austrian chick just talking shit. Let's put her in this crazy room. and then. Well, and also, if, if they believed this, or if they like heard the story that she had been missing for eight years, it's very rare for kidnapped victims, especially in 2008, um, because I don't know if this was before or after the Ariel Castro thing, um, but it was definitely before the Fritzel thing. It was fairly unheard of, and it may have been right around J.C. Dugard as well. It, it was fairly unheard of for long-time kidnap victims to surface back up. They Everyone just figured she was dead. dead. Yeah. yeah, so that's where I think... It's they didn't believe her because they thought she was a liar necessarily. I think they didn't believe her because it was unbelievable. I don't know if that makes sense. I'm not trying to like fucking <laughs> give any kind of leeway to the police because they definitely mishandled the fuck out of this case. So officers from her special task force were amazed and believed that she was telling the truth. There were only a few that wanted to wait for the DNA results to come back. A female officer was able to question and talk to Natasha on her own. Natasha felt comfortable with her and opened up. The words poured out of her. When she got to the end, she asked the female officer not to give any interviews, but if she did, Natasha just asked that she say something nice about her. The female officer promised that she wouldn't give any interviews, but later had to break the promise with the overwhelming media attention of the case. She would later apologize directly to Natasha. I'm having a hard time saying Natasha. <laughs> Natasha understood. Her story became an overnight sensation, much to everyone's surprise. They figured that no one would come to the small town of Strasshof. Strasshof. Strasshof, excuse me. But they were wrong. The first footage of her on the news showed her hiding under a blue blanket with her bruised and pale legs poking out underneath. On the way to Vienna, Natasha found out that the manhunt for Wolfgang was in full swing. Inside, Natasha knew that since she lived, since she chose life, she knew he would have to choose death. The first time she saw her mother, she wanted to apologize for not saying goodbye the day that she left. They embraced. The very close human contact was a new weird feeling that made her head spin. The rest of her family came too and were overjoyed to have Natasha back. When she asked about her beloved grandmother, she was informed that she had died two years prior. That's sad. Yeah, that is sad. Over the next few days, she had to be available to police for anything. They also hooked her up with a psychologist. They continuously asked her where or how they could find Wolfgang. Natasha knew he would kill himself but didn't want to say that. That first night, she spent in a hotel room with a psychologist. She took a long bath but couldn't enjoy it. Somewhere out there was the man who had been the only person in her life for eight and a half years, looking for a way to kill himself. The next day, she asked about the kidnapper, and an officer cautiously answered, The kidnapper is no longer alive, he said. He committed suicide, throwing himself in front of a train at 8.59 p.m., near Vienna's northern railway station. 
Yeah, and I read somewhere too. It's not in the book, but I read somewhere that that one friend that he had that we're going to talk about at least one more time. I want his name's like I can't. It's like Hans Kopfel or something. He like Wolfgang basically called him up and was like, "Hey, dude, can you take me on a drive?" And he was like, "Uh, sure." And he went on like a three-hour drive with his friend and admitted everything and basically told told that friend everything like everything horrible he had done and then basically he was like hey can you let me off here and it was like near the train tracks and the dude like drove away and that's how it, like that's when he killed himself that's pretty wild yeah uh, way to burden your only friend yeah and again, I say friend. I think that it was maybe obligatory more of like, guy that ex maybe ex more of like a coworker. Yeah, yeah. yeah that know. like maybe he was friendly with because I don't think he's capable of like actual close human contact. I don't know. On that show that we watched, this friend he's a fucking weird unit as well. So, yeah. I mean, he's Austrian, so these fuckers are weird. <laughs> okay, sorry to our Austrian listener. Do we have one? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and also, I got to say, throwing yourself in front of a train and getting your head squashed is quite, quite a, way to a dramatic yeah. way to go out. Yeah. And way to fuck up everyone else's commute. Because, you yeah. know, when they do that, you fucking got to shut down the train. And way to make the fucking conductor feel like shit. Wolfgang Priclopil, whatever the fuck your name is. Wolfgang Priclopil. You're a fucking dickhead, and I'm glad you're dead. So Wolfgang Pricklopeel was no more. Natasha was free. In her epilogue, Natasha talks about the aftermath, how her dungeon bedroom was constantly on the news, how they rummaged through her most personal things. The media cobbled together their version of the truth, which wasn't true. Surprise, surprise. So she decided to give multiple interviews to clear her name and story. Many people told her to change her name and go into hiding, but that was exactly what her kidnapper made her like wanted her to do yeah I, so, I like that she made that point too yeah so she would not continue in isolation or anonymity people began to flock to the house of horrors which made her uneasy because she lived there right no i mean she she was a prisoner there for eight and a half years but no at this point this was like literally the day after we're talking. Oh, okay. So she ends up. Going. Yeah. It ends up being like on the news constantly. And it's just like being swarmed by people. And she said it, it had to have been swarmed by people wanting to feel a shudder of terror. Like, Ooh, that's the house. You know, I mean, I've done shit like that too. You know, where we all have yeah. everyone listening has done that too. Yeah. Like where you're like, Oh shit, this is the house where this thing happened. Didn't we do that recently with something? We, Went to we went to the Ocean Cecil Isle, right? What? Where'd you go to college? Oh, I went to college at UCSB, and yeah, the the mass shooter Elliot Rogers. You know, I mean, he shot up the place I used to work at and stuff. So like, we went there right after to see the memorials and stuff. But again, like, almost more out of respect for the victims than for like any kind of you know. But there is that idea, like I well that that's different because I used to live and work there. So there, I I just kind of want to see what changed. It's a little different too, from like a one place that this continuous thing has been going on for. Yeah, eight like years. Fred and Rosemary West, or like um, you know, there's just 
there uh, even like Ed Gein's house turned into like a museum, right? Well, of course. Well, and that's what she didn't want. Yeah, so she didn't want this house to turn into a creepy mecca for perverts to admire. So she made sure it didn't get sold. She made sure it was granted to her as damages. Man, wouldn't you just love to know like the mom's reaction? Like she never what's really respectful of Natasha. She never brings Waltrude into it or anything like that. Or like, you know, points at any part of his family or anything. But like it would be interesting. I would just love to be a fly on that wall when that mom got that news of what happened to her son or what her son had done. Not because I would get any thrill. I just was getting that news that your kid is capable of doing something like that. You know what I mean? I knew my son couldn't clean that well. <laughs> Probably. In a later interview, Natasha said, I know it's grotesque. I must now pay for electricity, water, and taxes on a house I never wanted to live in. She also noted that she has visited it since her escape. When the third anniversary of her escape approached, it was revealed that she had been a regular visitor at the property and was cleaning it out. And people love to make a lot of that. Like, they're like, oh, she, she like fantasizes about still being a prisoner there. Like... The shit that's on the internet about her, oh my God, just fucking avoid it like the plague, which is one of the reasons that like I really tried to only use her memoir as like out of respect, you know, as like our primary source. But God damn, people love to villainize this girl, which is fucking insane. Yeah. People on the internet are real. They're real tough on the internet. I mean, she's known as like the sex slave of Vienna, like and it's like she doesn't even address it in her book. Yeah. So far in the story, there's zero sex. Yeah. When the, well. I'm sure, well. She said that there was minor sexual abuse and she doesn't want to talk about it. I said in this story. Yeah. In 2011, the dungeon was filled in with cement. People were surprised that Natasha didn't move back in with her family, but she craved the independence that she never had. She was 18. Remember that magical age she had been looking forward to for so long. Natasha talks about the overwhelming media attention on her escape. She writes, the sympathy extended to a victim is deceptive. People love the victim only when they can feel superior to him or her. Already in the initial flood of correspondence, I received dozens of letters that provoked a queasy feeling. There were many stalkers, love letters, marriage requests, and the perverse anonymous letters. I gotta say, the media is the enemy of the people the people yeah like they just fucking twist the knife well they capitalism twit no not this is austria this is not even fucking capitalism. i'm sure they're capitalist i'm just saying like anything to sell right but yeah. they just twist every fucking story they never fucking give it to you straight fuck yeah. you media <laughs> that's why we're making our own But even the offers of help were indicative of what was going on inside many. It is a human reflex that makes you feel better about yourself when you can help someone weaker, a victim. That works as long as the rules are clearly defined. Gratitude to the giver is wonderful, but when it is abused to prevent the other from developing his or her her full potential, the whole thing takes on a hollow ring. So basically people kind of heard about her saying stuff like this and she was offered work as a maid in people's homes. They didn't think that was like inappropriate or anything. People sent her their old clothing and word got around that Natasha was ungrateful 
because she kind of criticized these people basically being like why do you think I, why why do you think i would want your old shit and why do you think i'd want to be a prisoner in your house as opposed to his you know like i just don't think she like you know bit her tongue when she wanted to say shit yeah she's like leave me the fuck alone so they guessed that she would probably try to capitalize on her story people found it strange that she could afford her own flat and gradually the sympathy turned into resentment and envy and sometimes to open hate. This was also about the time when she refused to say terrible things about her kidnapper the way everyone expected and wanted her to. As soon as she began to paint a more nuanced picture of her kidnapper, people rolled their eyes and looked away. It made people feel uncomfortable. Again, I started off the podcast with saying she is not a quote-unquote perfect victim, right? Not in the way that J.C. Dugard or Elizabeth Smart, you know, was like this, you know. And I'm not trying to say that like J.C. Dugard and Elizabeth Smart are like weak or anything at all. I'm just saying that they were angelic. You know what I mean? They were angelic and grateful and sweet and lovely and they were everything that the media wanted them to be so the authorities began to resent her as well she felt the fact that she freed herself without their help seemed to bother them in this case there were no rescuers she was her own rescuer but rather those who had failed all of those years this was exacerbated by the scandal of the second tip that got buried over the years by many police officers like we talked about in the last episode so the epilogue was written four years after her escape. And in that time, she was able to do a lot of growing up, school, and reconnecting with her family. On August 12th, 2016, Natasha Kampusch released her second book titled 10 Years of Freedom, which I have not read yet, but I do plan on it. So, oh, and also uh, 3,096 Days in Captivity, her memoir was also turned into a major German or Austrian film. And it's like impossible to watch in the United States unless you buy it off of like eBay. And even then, there's a potential that it doesn't even have subtitles. So I would like to see it. But obviously, I didn't get to see it before these episodes. So that's the story. What do you think? Uh, what do I think? Well, I'm glad Wolfgang's dead. And I'm yeah. glad that Natasha is alive and well. And doing her own thing, not not bowing down to the media who can suck a dick uh I, what the one thing i really like about her too is that she hates the media as well but she tries to influence and manipulate the media to fit her agenda it's not like she completely shies away from the media altogether she'll give interviews and shit but like she never says what they want her to say i like that about her i do too i think that she was a rebel before she was abducted it helped her during her abduction she rebelled against you know wolfgang and that that spirit stayed with her until now you know what i mean like i like that she never lost that kind of rebellious streak of the you know like fuck you don't oh god this not that rage against the machines book you won't do what you tell me yes amy that <laughs> is rage against the machine that's the only thing I know from Rage Against the Machine, by the way. But that's that's what she says. Fuck you, I don't I won't do what you tell me. You know, that has Let's been the not motto close on Rage Against the Machine. That's been the motto of my life, pretty much. <laughs> I, most people can attest to that. Yeah. All right. 
So we'll end on another note, which is you can join our Facebook group, The True Crime Dumpster. You can follow us on Twitter, TC Dumpster, and on Instagram, True Crime Dumpster. Yes, I need to update that one. You can email us. Oh, we need to email back our Aussie friend. You can email us at truecrimedumpster at gmail.com. You can listen to our shows on all the platforms. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and tell your friends about our podcast. Helps us to get to more people. And, you know, like, I think that the Natasha Kampusch story is not as popular as all the others that I've mentioned. And, you know, I think her story is just as important as Elizabeth Smart's, just as important as J.C. Dugard, Amanda Berry, Gina DeJesus, Michelle Knight, all of those women... Elizabeth Fritzl, we we talked about her a lot throughout. And actually something that Natasha did was she donated money to Elizabeth Fritzl, who, you know, was I think she's the longest in history, basically, to be held captive by her abductor. It was 24 years. <laughs> yeah, that's um, crazy. I hope that's the longest. Yeah. But I just want to acknowledge that, like, her story is really unique and terrifying and empowering and all of those things. And it'd be nice, you know, if more people knew about her story. And don't read the bullshit online. There's a lot of bullshit about her having, like, a secret child and being in love with him and all that. It's bullshit. Like, just take the survivor's word as, you know, word is law. Gospel. Gospel. The gospel truth. And yeah, that's that's our final word on the, the case here at the dumpster. Tune in next time as we continue talking out the trash and we continue talking about human garbage. Bye. Bye now. <laughs>